Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 5th, 2021, and my guest is author and podcaster Julia Galef. She hosts Rationally Speaking, which she has done since its inception in 2010. And she has just published her first book, which is the subject of today's episode, The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. Julia, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. It's so nice to be on your show after listening it to, to it to, for so many years. That's awesome. Uh, you contrast the scout mindset with the soldier mindset. What are they and why is it better to think like a scout than a soldier? That, that's the whole book. Uh, also, I'll try to be as concise as I can. Um, so soldier mindset is my term for a phenomenon I'm sure everyone is familiar with in different guises. Um, basically, it means the motivation to defend your beliefs against any evidence or argument that might threaten those beliefs. So you might know this under names like rationalizing or denial or wishful thinking or motivated reasoning um, or to some extent confirmation bias. Um, and soldier mindset is just my umbrella term for all of those things. And the, the reason I call it soldier mindset is just because the way, like if you look at the language that we use to talk about reasoning, it's very militaristic. You know, we talk about, uh, well, defending beliefs. We try to support our beliefs or buttress our positions like we're, we were defending a fortress. Um, and when we talk about dealing with opposing arguments or criticism, we talk about poking holes in someone's case or shooting down an argument very militaristic. So I call it soldier mindset. And then scout mindset is my alternative to soldier mindset. And whereas a, a soldier, uh, their role is to attack and defend, the scout's role is just to go out and see the, the landscape, the situation as clearly as possible, and put together as accurate a map as they can of what's really there. So scout mindset is the motivation to see what's really there and not just what you wish was there. Um, I'm a big fan of that, and I love the term. I think it's a great metaphor for thinking about oh, thank you. a way to live and a way to make your way through the world, which is the world's really complicated. Um, of course, inevitably, no map corresponds one-to-one -one with reality. So the exactly. scout does have to confront the reality that the scout's vision of reality is imperfect. That's absolutely true, uh, and one reason I added that that subtle little uh, qualifying word in my in my description that you want as accurate a map as possible, and so that's you know that's accepting the fact that all of our maps, even if you're a genius and you're spend you're exerting 100% of your effort towards seeing the world clearly, which I don't think you should be exerting 100% of your effort, but even if you were, your map would still be, you know, if you were doing it right, it would be full of know, areas of uncertainty, there'd be some question marks, there'd be some, you know, here be dragons <laughs> on your map, or, you know, who knows what here be. And, uh, and you know, you're, you also just go into this whole endeavor accepting that you're going to be, you know, the map should be drawn in pencil, not pen, you should be erasing things and redrawing things as you learn more about the world. And that's just how the process is supposed to work. Uh, so that's, that's absolutely true. So I'm a big fan of that. And I think listeners would recognize immediately that 
that you and I are very uh, simpatico there. Uh, mm-hmm. Historically, uh, I think people have tried to push people towards scout rather than soldier by encouraging, say, numeracy, uh, economic mm-hmm. literacy, which is part of of my of econ talk, obviously. Uh, but at some point, within the last five years, I got pessimistic about that approach. Disillusioned. Yeah, and and it, the reason I got disillusioned is I realized that a lot of people aren't like me, or at least like they're not like the way well, I that's think. True. They're not like yeah. the way I want to be or think of yeah. myself. I like to think of myself as a somewhat objective truth seeker. Now, I know, like all human beings, that's not a hundred percent true. I got plenty of soldier in me, but uh, what what I got disillusioned about is the idea that that most people would like to be, even if they're flawed, most mm-hmm. people would like to be objective truth seekers. I've started to think that's not really true. And one way yeah. to think of your book is a way to convince people that they ought to be, as well as giving them tools for that uh, effort if they want them. Do, do you agree right. with that, with my assessment? That's, and and is, do you see your book that way? Basically. So the way I think about it is there's, uh, out of the entirety of everyone who exists, there's, there's a large subset that are just not interested in the idea of being more scout-like. And, and I, should, I should emphasize that as you kind of alluded to, we all, it's not like some people are scouts and some people are soldiers, even though I sometimes use the word scouts as kind of shorthand to refer to people who are unusually good at scout mindset. But still, we're all a mix of scout and soldier, and we might be more scout-like in some circumstances and more soldier-like in others. So it's a spectrum. But but so out, out of the whole population, I think a large subset of people are not interested in being more scout-like. They like being soldiers. They're, this is not a project that interests them, and I'm probably not going to reach them, which is fine. Um, but then there's also a, a very large subset, I think, of people who at least in theory like the idea of being more scout-like. Uh, and they might not like that idea for the same reasons that you and I like it. You know, I think a lot of being a scout appeals to me because of... I don't know. I, I find it exciting and admirable and kind of honorable mm-hmm. to to prioritize truth over your own ego or over, you know, yeah. like whatever feels convenient or comforting in the moment. So I have my own reasons for, for finding this exciting. Um, and not everyone might share those reasons. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is pointing out, like, this is actually, this is a mindset that benefits you. So it's something you should be selfishly interested in, even if you don't share my uh, my, my feeling that it's expire, inspiring and exciting to be a scout. Uh, so that's, that's sort of to get to the second part of your first question, which I didn't really answer, which is why should people move from soldier towards scout? Um, my basic answer is because it improves your judgment. You know, having an accurate map of the world, having, uh, you know, knowing like where, where are the bridges crossing the river and where are the risks and dangers and where, like, which route can I take that will get me quickest to where I'm trying to go? Um, having that accurate map is really useful for making decisions. And we have to make tons of decisions in our lives, whether that's about, you know, what's going to make us happy or where should I invest my money or what medical treatments are worth, worth trying? Um, should I enter a relationship or leave this relationship? Should I have kids? Um, so we just have thousands of decisions, big and small. And my claim is that the more accurate your map of the world, the more accurate your map of yourself and your strengths and weaknesses and how other people work, the better your decisions are going to be. So we can think of two different aspects of that. One is 
having more information, which you could say yeah. is like the altitude of the hill across the way, what it's going to take to climb it, how far away it is as the scout. Right, right. What provisions your army's going to need to get around that when there's no river over there and there is one over here. And, right. and, and the other part, of course, is the information isn't sufficient. You also have to have a way to process that information in a, right. in a rational, thoughtful way. And as, as much as possible. Right, yeah. as much as possible. That, that's, that's sort of the North Star that you're yeah. aiming for. And I've become yeah. a little bit skeptical of that. I, I, I'd like, um, I want to come to that in a minute. I actually want to ask you something yeah. first about I, something you just said. And that we'll, I also realized I didn't finish my thought from earlier, so I'll just flag that. Sorry, no, I, I get lost in my very long train Don't of we all? But, but what I was trying to say earlier was that, you know, there's a, a bunch of people who are just not going to be interested in being more scout-like, and that's fine. But then there's also tons of people who, who like the idea, at least in theory, um, but they're still a lot less scout-like than they could be because of a number of factors. A, they're just not paying that much attention to this as a, as a thing to improve on. And so part of the goal of my book is to just make this um, make this mindset a lot more salient and, and kind of point right. out all of the ways in which it manifests and helps you and all of the different circumstances in which you could be more scout-like. And so I think just having a lot of salient examples can help people act more like scouts, you know, even if they already kind of in theory accepted this is a good thing to do. Um, and then also what I've learned is that a lot of people like the idea, but they have a lot of objections to it or hesitations. And so they say, you know, yeah, like, yes, it's good to have accurate beliefs and, and, you know, good judgment, but there are a lot of, a lot of circumstances in which you really shouldn't be a scout because, you know, you need self-deception or wishful thinking in order to be happy or to be motivated or to be confident. And so that was another goal of the book was to try to show people that I think that's not actually true. um, And that a lot of the things that they think they need soldier mindset for, they actually don't need soldier mindset. And so they could be more scout-like without sacrificing the things that they care about. So that, that was another goal. I, I sort of was hoping the book would, you know, take that large group of people who sort of are at least theoretically sympathetic to scout mindset um, and help, help, you know, push them more in the direction of the scout in practice, not just in theory. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Why would you, ca- why do you care? Uh, <laughs> why, why well, not, I mean, it's great for you, but these other people are, let's say, living in a fantasy world about whatever it is, whether it's a misunderstanding of some ideological issue, an issue yeah. of science, religion, atheism, whatever it is, let them there. Leave them alone. Why would you? Why do you care what they think? Uh, I guess there's a couple answers to this. One answer is just that I maybe it's maybe it's like the economist in me. I just I hate waste, mm-hmm. and it just seems like there's all of this unnecessary waste happening where people are, are like leaving value on the table. They, mm-hmm. they could, you know, I think that they actually could make better decisions and, uh, and not have to sacrifice this kind of valuable ability to see things clearly. Um, and that they're, they're making that sacrifice unnecessarily because they don't notice they're making it or because they think they need to make that sacrifice in order to be happy. And so no, in the name of efficiency, almost, I'm driven to, to show people, no, you don't have to make that sacrifice. You can, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your happiness and your, you know, clear understanding of the world. And so that, that goal kind of inspires me in its own way. Um, and then, and then, yes, I also think the world would be a better place if, if people were, you know, a little more committed to 
objectivity and intellectual honesty. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to pressure people into doing something that's not good for them um, just because I think it has positive externalities. But I do actually think that, that on the margin, moving from soldier mindset towards scout mindset is good for people as well as the world. And so I, I feel very driven to, to communicate that to them um, because I think that would be, uh, there's a lot of value we're all leaving on the table, basically. So we're going to get to that other point in a minute, but I, I wanted to, to come back to something you said earlier. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put it in my words. Uh, I'll, actually, let me say it about myself. If you ask me why do I, at least in my mind, strive to be more of a scout and less of a soldier, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say to make me happy, and I wouldn't say to have a better life in the in the usual sense that people mean it. Yeah. I would say more related to I think the way you started to phrase it earlier. It's part of who I am. Mm-hmm. It's part of the way uh, my identity. It's part of how I see myself. It's more importantly, something I aspire to in the language of Agnes Callow, yeah. um, who, who was recently, uh, uh, I think her episode's going to come out after yours, but we'll see. Oh, um, I think that's a, a key part of it for me. And in fact, I, I think it's it's very unclear that it, that it's good for you. Now, obviously, if you think you can fly and jump off a 10-story building, that, that that's a mistake. But the level of, of scoutness versus um, soldierness that we're talking about here in terms of politics, religion, uh, mm-hmm. big deci- personal decisions, certainly you don't want to fool yourself about whether uh, a certain kind of uh, food that you like eating but it makes you you know, violently ill. probably shouldn't eat it. But – most of the decisions that we have this soldier problem with are ideological, and it's really hard to know what the right what, what a scout should think, right, about religion or about politics uh, or about our values. And so, I, I think it's a hard sell. You did a pretty good job. I don't want to suggest that, that <laughs> you know you, you failed at it, but I'd like to hear you defend it here. Uh-huh. Uh, most people are comfortable with being in the dark about what really is the effect, say, of the minimum wage mm-hmm. or whether God exists or whether you should vote Democrat or Republican. They might think they know the answer to all those, but the mm-hmm. truth is it's really hard to establish it in any scientific way. There are some views that are less credible than others. doesn't mean mm-hmm. that we have nothing to say about those issues, but I, I do think it's um, you're at risk. There are two issues here, I think. One is you're not necessarily going to be happy. You might be less happy because you're going to lose all your friends uh, if you change. You have to find a new set. And, and uh-huh. But the second is, since you can't really find the truth in a lot of those areas, it's not clear how to be a good scout. So those are two tough questions. They're different. See if, take either one or both and see what you think. Yeah, uh, that, so it's a great you, – you did such a great job of, of outlining what I see as like the, the main – sort of serious objection to what I'm trying to do here. Uh, and I, I love it. And I thought a lot about that as I was writing the book. So uh, I want to start with what you, what you said about, you know, usually when we're in soldier mindset, it's about something kind of ideological that doesn't really matter for our lives, like politics. Um, and I think that's maybe half of what's happening here. So 
to, to oversimplify, I would de- describe the kinds of situations that we're in into um, three categories. One category is uh, very sort of concrete, everyday situations where um, scout mindset comes naturally to, to us because it's something with direct consequences for our life. And we have little intent, uh, little incentive to deceive ourselves anyway. So like being in scout mindset about, you know, what's the best way to get to the train station on in time to make my train or something. We don't really struggle with soldier mindset very much on those kinds of issues. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, the there's this category of ideological issues where we have a strong incentive to deceive ourselves because it feels good or because it helps us, you know, uh, fit in with our, our tribe, the, our yeah. peer group. Um, and conversely, we have little incentive to be accurate, at least little direct incentive, because what's, yeah, as you put it, what is the harm of someone having false beliefs about tax policy yeah. <laughs> or immigration or something? Because, you know, it doesn't really, there's no direct consequences for them. And so indeed, we see a lot of soldier mindset in, in that category. But then one category in the middle that I think you neglected is issues where we have strong incentives in both directions. And so we tend to vacillate. So I think a lot of important life decisions fall into that category. They don't even have to be necessarily important in the grand scheme of things, just fraught. Like um, one example I describe in the book is my, when I was running workshops, like teaching workshops on decision-making and cognitive science, I, I had this strong incentive to find out from my students if there were any problems with the workshop, like if I was teaching it badly or they were lost or unhappy. Um, and so I would try to ask them, you know, how's the workshop going for you? Are you having a good time? Are you, does it make sense? Um, but I also really hate hearing bad news <laughs> and I really hate sure. getting criticism. <laughs> yeah. And so I also had the strong incentive to get the answer yeah. that I wanted to hear. And so I noticed after the fact that when I asked people these questions, like, are you enjoying the workshop? I was nodding at them unconsciously. And, and a couple of times, even like giving two thumbs up as I asked, are you liking the workshop? Because I had these two competing, there was this tension between the scout and soldier incentives. Um, And so I think there are a lot of cases in which people do at least in theory recognize, I think I would be better if I could be more of a scout about, you know, uh, facing my problems head on or about taking criticism or, you know, thinking about risks, um, but it's just hard to do. And so it's, it, it could be helpful if I can, you know, give them some strategies for making that an easier transition. And then, so that's kind of, that's part of my answer. And then to go back to the ideological situations where, you know, why bother trying to be a scout because there's no direct benefit to you? Um, I think that's a, a, a bit of a tougher sell, but I, I do think that there's, there's a strong case to be made that scout mindset is, it's kind of a general habit of mind. Um, and a lot of the things that go into being a scout are, uh, they're almost unconscious. Like the question of whether it even occurs to you to look for an exception to your, you know, initial judgment or the, the emotional skill of even being able to consider the possibility that you might be wrong about something when you want to be right. Those are kind of, those are mental and emotional habits. And I think training those habits through repeated practice is quite important. And so it seems to me that if you're, if you're practicing those habits, even in domains that don't have a direct benefit to you, like politics, um, I think that's good for you in general. And it makes scout mindset easier, even in the, you know, it makes scout mindset easier in cases where it actually does benefit you because you've been practicing it just as a general habit of mind and not just trying to like turn it off and on, you know, when it seems directly useful or not. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a fan, no, that's a fantastic point. Um, okay. I want to riff on it a little bit. Um, I, I think you have a number of examples in the book where you fell victim to soldier mindset, and here you are writing a book about it, and you yeah. think you'd be really good at it. And that could be you're just not good at it. That's not my <laughs> presumption. But just, just not good at just uh, you're just genetically soldier oriented, say. Uh, but I think oh, we're all okay. kind of soldier oriented, and I think scout yeah. mindset is something you have to work on. Um, I had a recent guest on the program, uh, Emiliana Simon Thomas, talking about happiness, and I wanted to mention this to listeners because I thought it was such an embarrassing and fantastic example of what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, she said that. I said, well, aren't some people just happy and not happy? I mean, really, can you do uh-huh. anything about it? Can a person actually follow behavior that will make them happier? And, and she said, well, actually, you know, there's studies that have shown that 50% is genetic, 40% is something else, and 10% is something else. And I went, oh, hmm. okay. Now, it turns out in the calm light of day when I'm being scouty, uh-huh. I don't believe that. Uh, uh-huh. At all. And I didn't even know what it means. Does that mean that on average people, it, it's not true that everybody's 50, 40, 10. Is that like a, uh-huh. a median or an average? Because there are some miserable people who are probably 10, 90, 0, et cetera. Right? Yeah. It, it's, um, you know, it's one of them's your, your genetic makeup. One's like your circumstances and one is your what you have control over. And I mm-hmm. think the claim was... 40 is what you have control over. And I thought, oh, that's great. But <laughs> the truth is, <laughs> it's even worse. So that's embarrassing. And, you, I, you know. And, but it's embarrassing that you didn't think to question that exactly. in the moment. Exactly. And, and listeners would give me, I hope, the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, he probably doesn't believe that, but he didn't want to interrupt her or he had other things to talk about. It, that's always plausible deniability yep, right there. Absolutely. That's what I count on. You know? However, yeah. a friend of mine sent me about, I don't know, a year or two ago. A talk by Albert uh, by Arthur Brooks, uh-huh. and he said, "You're going to hate this." And I thought, oh, "Well, I kind of like Arthur." And I looked uh-huh. at the talk, and I was trying to figure out what he thought I'd hate about. It. The answer is at one point yeah. in the talk, Arthur goes, "Well, fifty percent genetic, forty percent up to you." And, <laughs> and of course, I re- immediately realized, "Yeah, okay, well, that's absurd. Like you can quantify it." Uh-huh. But when it just came up in that pleasant conversation I was having with an econ talk guest, even though I'm in actually very much a skeptical mode usually as as host. Mm-hmm. Just kind of went went right by, and I do think your point that you make progress in adopting that mindset by adopting it kind of everywhere because it's too hard otherwise. I think it's very important, um, and I think in personal areas, which you talked about as sort of the middle ground, I think it's extremely important. I think the you know, the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living uh, is a deep truth. And I think in our own personal lives, self-awareness is really useful, uh, I think, most of the time. It can make you unhappy. I, I don't want to fully accept the argument that it's good for you in terms of your happiness, but I think it's generally good for you. So I'm actually curious for, to, for you to elaborate on your thoughts on this because the – so this – there were – three or four areas um, that I focused on in the book of areas in which people tend to think, well, scout mindset is going to make me worse off in this particular way or this particular area. And happiness uh, was one of them. Specifically, people tend to think that you need some amount of, of Delusion. denial or self-deception yeah, <laughs> to, you know, to keep from just being <laughs> bereft, <laughs> like to, yeah. to keep, to, to stave off negative emotions like 
insecurity or or regret or fear um, that you know are just going to paralyze you and and you know you need to get rid of somehow and they so they think that self deception is necessary for that and my sense is that actually it, I, I'm not going to claim I, I don't think I can justifiably claim that in every single case scout mindset can deal with these emotions um, and you don't need soldier mindset because I don't think I can know that for sure. Um, but certainly in you know the vast majority of cases I've looked at, whenever people claim you need self-deception in order to you know deal with regret or something, uh, my reaction is always, but, but I know people, like I have personally used strategies to deal with this issue that don't require self-deception. And I know other people who are able to you know deal with, well, I'll just give you an example. There was um, something that Daniel Kahneman wrote about in Thinking Fast and Slow, um, so he, he gives this example of like a door-to-door salesman who gets the door slammed in, in his face. Yeah. And Kahneman says, you know, yes, it's, it's maybe a, a bias, but, but still, isn't it better for that person's happiness and, and self-esteem to tell himself, well, that person was just a jerk. Isn't that better for him than saying, well, maybe I'm a bad salesman. And I read that and I was like, but those aren't our only two options. Like there are plenty of things at the intersection of, you know, honest and also comforting, <laughs> that he could be telling himself instead of reaching for the self-deceptive strategy of saying, you know, well, she was just a jerk and that's why she slammed the door in my face. Uh, So, you know, he could tell himself, um, well, yeah, I got the door slammed in my face, but everyone gets the door slammed in their face sometimes. Or he could tell himself, well, I used to get the door slammed in my face every day and now it's like once a week. And so I'm making progress or, you know, whatever, whatever is actually true, but also comforting. Um, I think there's usually, or, you know, in, Every case I can think of, there are things in that intersection where you can make yourself feel better without having to resort to telling yourself a lie. Does that not seem true to you? Yeah, I think there's two things about that I mean, that are you know really important. One is just, I think we're kind of, we very naturally gravitate toward the either or, because yeah. two is easier to decide and choose from than yeah. seven. So I think we're a little bit blind to that third possibility. Uh, and it, as you point out, it's really more than, usually more than three so it's right. either, oh, jerk, I'm a, I'm a bad salesman, I'll go with jerk. But right. the idea that you could reflect and think about how you could become a better salesman would seem to me to be good advice. Uh, and right. I just think in life in general, that's such a rich and important thing. And it's one of the things I like the most about your book. It's that you give a lot of examples where instead of just saying, oh, well, you know, take, it, take another example, I'm ugly. Well, that's right. depressing. I'll just pretend I'm good looking. Now, I'm not going to tell you you should make a really studied effort to assess how attractive one is, you know, in the across the scale of one to ten. Uh-huh. But, but that's just, and that's one that has a lot of emotional insecurity around it for most people. Yeah. But, but I think being aware of your shortcomings would is usually a positive. I understand it could bring you down the first time you hear it. Or the first time you realize, I, I behave a certain way in public, say. And I've always thought, and I'm justified for that because fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. I get an example that, that, that came up again in this uh, Callard episode is anger. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. of course I got outraged at that person. They had such stupid things to say. Can you blame me? The answer is, yeah, right. you can. It's not a healthy thing for you. <laughs> not a healthy thing for convincing them otherwise. It's not a nice thing. to. I mean, a lot of reasons not to do that. And I think it's very hard for us to to seek those out. And I think the the scout the scout mindset in that setting 
is exceptionally important. It, 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 it's a reflective strategy. It's saying, is there something else here I could turn to uh, besides the, the standard ways that we think about these things? I think that's really fantastic. Oh, I, I assumed there was a but coming there. No. no. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I, I mean, I agree, obviously. Um, you know, even even just kind of strategies like, like, what are you comparing your situation to? Like, it's easy to feel bad about your situation if you're comparing yourself to the most successful people in the world or to the hypothetical best you could have done. And that can make you feel bad and it can be tempting to, you know, reach for something self-justifying to deal with feeling bad, uh, like telling yourself, well, you know, wasn't my fault that I, you know, didn't do as well as I could have, or, well, those successful people are probably all miserable anyway. Like those, those are strategies that can make you feel better, but a different approach is just to compare yourself to something else <laughs> and, you know, focus on, I don't know, how lucky you are to even be alive and healthy and, you know, have all the blessings that you have, uh, compared to so many people in the world and so many people throughout history, um, I think that is a true fact and reflecting on it can make me feel much better about my situation without, you know, me having to tell myself something false. Yeah, but, I, but I, that one doesn't work so well for me. And I think other people as well struggle with it, the idea that, well, there are people worse off than you or uh, your expectations are irrationally high. Uh, it's very hard, I think, for us to, to internalize that. I'm going to give you an example from my dad. Um, my dad said, uh, used to say, he said, you know, God gave me an incredible soul and not enough talent as a poet. <laughs> he felt things so strongly, but he struggled to write great poetry. He wanted to be a poet. He, he was, it was just a, a, a real um, a hobby of his that was incredibly important to him. And I, when he passed away, my brother found, uh, going through his stuff, uh, the notebook of maybe... I don't know, 50, 60 poems that he had crafted over the course of, of a few decades that he was proud of. And he used to tell me, mm-hmm. he used to tell me, you know, I don't really, I don't need to be Robert Frost. Uh, I just, I just want to be a minor American poet. That, mm-hmm. that, that's all I aspire to. Now, mm-hmm. I think I know my dad, knew my dad well enough that if he'd become a minor American poet, he would have been disappointed he wasn't Robert Frost. <laughs> and I think, and I think uh-huh. that's a very human thing. Sure. And I think it's unfortunate because he didn't enjoy the ride as much as he would have. He wrote some great poems. He was not a minor American poet in the official sense that he's, you know, he's, he's not in Wikipedia under poets. Have you but, published any of them? No, and he didn't either. He submitted some of them. I put some, I'm going to put some of them up on uh, Medium uh, that I love. But the point is that I, I think this idea uh, – I think it's good to know your limitations and enjoy what you have. Like that was, you know, your point was that you should, you should, um, right. Lower your expectations. Uh, or just, and realize that you're better or just off. Just be than, aware that you're better. Yeah. That you're better off than you could be. And so even if you're not at the very top of where you could be, you're still, you can still feel good about where you are. But my dad um, didn't even make it to minor American. And, and yet I think it was, <laughs> it's, that's a shame. It would have been great for him just to enjoy, yeah. you know, writing poems and sharing with his family, and um, it's okay. So I, I think, uh, yeah, I think rather than focus on well, there are people worse off than I am. I think it's great just to be in the moment and say, "Well, oh, it's a beautiful poem. It gives me satisfaction." Okay, it's yeah. not as recognized as as it could be, but it's still nice. 
You know, one, one thing that I've uh, converged on in the last few years, uh, especially in working on the book, but just in general, uh, is that I feel like people are just sufficiently different that a strategy for, you know, feeling good or for motivating yourself or whatever, a strategy that works for one person has only a s- somewhat good chance of working for other people. And so that's one reason I tried to give this whole kind of array of different possible, you know, I call them honest coping strategies in the book um, because I just find there's so much variation and that for one person, you know, really being in the moment can be really effective. And for someone else, they might need to, you know, they might need to have a comparison that they feel good about and it's not going to work for them to stay in the moment. Same thing with dealing with criticism, actually. I've had people give me advice for, for being able to be open to criticism that's like, conjure up a sense of gratitude towards your critic and, and really appreciate the service that he's doing for you in pointing out your flaws. And I'm Horrible just like, flaws. no, <laughs> that, no, my every ounce of my being refuses or, or um, rejects the idea of being grateful to a critic. Uh, I guess with some exceptions, I can imagine some critics who I can tell really just are going out of their way to try to help me, but that's not the typical critic that I encounter. Um, so I just, I use different strategies to be open to criticism, like, you know, focusing on how much better I'm going to be in the future if I can manage to listen to and integrate this criticism or, or feeling proud of myself, feeling even smug about my ability to listen to criticism. <laughs> Those are strategies that, that work for me and may not work for other people. Uh, so I try to be aware of that variation in, in humanity. Yeah, I talk a lot in the program about gaining, getting, and it's, it's embedded in your book. You don't say it exactly like this, but you know, learn to get pleasure from saying, I don't know. Yeah. And to come back to your earlier point, about how certain habits spread across different parts of your life, even if you start in one area. My ability to say I don't know the first time was horribly painful, and, and I felt insecure about it. It was I didn't like it, but I've now gotten to the point where I enjoy saying it, mm-hmm. even even when it's mildly embarrassing, right? If it's something like when someone will say, you know, you, you should do a program on on uh, monetary policy. In a world of uncertainty, in an international setting with Bitcoin introduced in half the world, and and I always mm-hmm. say, I don't really understand that stuff. And I used yeah. to be like embarrassed, like well, didn't I get good graduate? Did did I was I a bad student in graduate school? Now it's mm-hmm. so it's so liberating. Uh-huh. It's okay <laughs> to say it, and and I say it in lots of areas of my life where I and it's like part of what that's about. And I want to come back to this earlier point about. You know, I would call it growing up, understanding yourself. Part of it's about taking off some of your armor, which goes really well with your soldier mindset. You know, we go through life with so much armor on for battle. And the more, I think, armor you can take off and still feel safe, because you really are safe. Because if someone says you're ugly or you're dumb, well, who really, really, what's, wash, in theory, it should not bother you. Even if it's true, it shouldn't bother you. There's so many more things to life than your appearance or just your IQ. There's kindness and there's nobility and there's courage. And you can work on all those other things. And yet we're so afraid of that. And so when we can say, I don't know, and take off a piece of my armor that says, oh, I know everything. Actually, I don't. I don't know. I take that off and I become less of a soldier. And I really think that's a nice way to think about your your metaphor that, you know, I, 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 I crash around in life wearing my big suit of armor, and it, it limits my ability not just to know myself and, the, and, and, and to find the truth, but it limits my ability to interact openly with people. And so what I can, can – if you criticize me and I go, yeah, you're right. I'm really not mm-hmm. – that's a good point. Boy, you, you have a human connection there that you can't otherwise have. 
Yeah, it's a really, it's very well put. And it's a really interesting question why we seem to have this, this systematic misperception of how bad it would be, like intuitive gut level misperception of how bad it would be for, you know, to say that you were wrong about something or to admit you don't know something. Um, And I have some, I have some evolutionary theories about that that I can't, you know, prove, but uh, one theory that I kind of discuss in the book is that, you know, in our, when we evolved in in the, the period of time when, that the the environment that was present during the bulk of the time humans were evolving, um, we did live in small tribes, and so the there was a, a small and fixed group of people to whom you had to, you know, look good and remain in their good graces. And if you failed at that, it could actually be a matter of life and death for you if the tribe decided you were, you know, untrustworthy or disloyal or something like that. And so it really was quite important to to really err on the side of not risking any potential social ostracization. And it seems to me like that, that instinct, which might have made sense in the evolutionary uh, environment, just does, we, we kind of ported it over to not just the modern environment where it's, it's just less true. Like it's less true that we rely on a small group of people for our survival and that we have to please them and, remain loyal to them in order to survive. That's less true. You can, you know, you can find another community if you, you know, really don't get along with your current community. You can support yourself just fine, even if lots of people in the world hate you. Um, so that's less true. And then also, I think we've ported that, that way of looking at things, that extreme risk aversion when it comes to any social consequences. We've ported that over to um, contexts where it doesn't really apply so much, like like saying you were wrong about something. It feels like you're, you're admitting weakness or you're you're being defeated in some way, the same way, you know, losing a physical battle in the ancestral environment might lower your status in the group. Um, but it, in practice, it just doesn't actually seem to work that way. Like, and that, that I think is one of the things that makes that process that you were describing of, of saying you don't know something or you, you were wrong about something and noticing, oh, this gets much easier as I do it uh, more and more. One of the things that makes that process work is just literally noticing that you were misperceiving the consequences of saying yeah. you were wrong about something that in fact, and I heard this from a bunch of people when I was interviewing people for my book, they said, you know what? I just, it really felt like it would be socially catastrophic for me as the CEO to say, I didn't know something or I was wrong about something. And I was just, I kept being pleasantly surprised that people, you know, didn't react badly to that. And I'm sure that it, it helps to be generally competent and, you know, a generally like nice and capable person. And that gives you a ton of cushion to say you were wrong about something or you don't know. Um, but but you kind of have to go through that process of trying it and seeing the consequences and being pleasantly surprised a few times for it to really sink in and for it to be something that you're able to do without too much trouble. So my favorite thing you said in all that was when you said you you invoked evolution and you said, not that I can prove yeah. it, because most people would yeah. say instead, well, you know, studies show that we evolved from groups of small bands of 50 or 150 or less and yeah. the blah, blah, blah. But I love that. And that's a, just an example of I don't know. It's a way of... I, I, you call it modest diffidence, I think, is, is the phrase. And I, 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 I really like that a lot. But, I think that was Benjamin Franklin's phrase, actually, that yeah, I was okay, quoting. You were quoting. He, I like yeah, the I don't want to take credit yeah, for point, Ben Franklin's words. He, you know, he said, uh, he was just talking about how when he was young, one of his favorite things to do was argue with people. I think, basically, he was referring to what we would now in modern times call destroying people in arguments. Yeah. And he loved this, and he was good at it because he was very clever. Um, 
But he started noticing that people were much more willing to actually listen to him if he expressed his views with what he called modest diffidence. So he intentionally added signals of uncertainty or humility in the way he expressed his ideas. So he would say, you know, it seems possible to me that, or, you know, I could be wrong about this, but, and, and he was just so surprised, like pleasantly surprised at how people were much more open to taking him seriously and even change their minds sometimes compared to when he was trying to, you know, beat them into submission with his arguments. Yeah. Having said, I agree yeah. with that, except that I have family members who don't like it that I always say, well, that could be true because sometimes they think it is true. <laughs> They're pretty sure of it. And they're tired of me saying, well, I'm not so sure, you know, the world's complicated. But anyway. Yeah, uh, I guess that's a slightly different. <laughs> yeah, th this is like a situation where you're trying to convince someone of something they don't yet already believe. And you're acknowledging that it's not certain. And that makes them more open to it. As opposed to saying you're unconvinced by something exactly. they're strongly yeah. believing. Yeah, fair enough. A little different. Fair enough. I, I, but I want to disagree with you a little bit on the um, Great. The evolutionary basis for our discomfort. I think, uh, you know, nothing could be more... Uh, frightening than going into battle without armor if your opponent's mm -hmm. armored. And although that is a situation that most of us don't physically, literally have to cope with, I've never jousted, I've never worn a suit of armor, uh, and uh, can't, can barely imagine it. But in life, as we get older, and actually sometimes it starts quite young, we find that when we open ourselves to others, we sometimes get bludgeoned, <laughs> mm -hmm. we get kicked or pushed around, and we develop that armor. It's not, I, I'm not sure it's, it's, a, it's totally part of our genetic heritage. I think some of it is part of the tragedy of the mm -hmm. loss of innocence that comes from growing up and having to confront people who aren't nice. And I, and I also would point out, to bring it mm -hmm. tied to something else, you know, it's not easy to find another circle of friends. But I would say, you know, when we when we have to confront the fact that they may not be the right people for us or the example you gave earlier, but I would say that finding a group of people who are nice is not unimportant. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go in and wear your armor and you get beat up, find a group of people who don't beat you up when you don't wear your armor. That's a better group to hang out right. with, usually. There's some exceptions, obviously, but. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's a great example of the kind of longer term calculus that I'm encouraging in the book that, you know, there, there are a number of cases where it seems like in the short term, like thinking just locally, soldier mindset is, is better for you than scout mindset. Like conforming to the group consensus, convincing yourself that you agree with the group is, is better because that way you don't lose your friends. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and similarly convincing yourself that you didn't make a mistake is better because, you know, that, that makes you feel better now. Um, and again, I'm, I can't claim that soldier mindset is never the best option for you. But I do think that in, in most of these cases, the, if you just widen your time horizon a little bit more, mm -hmm. it's less clear that soldier mindset is the best case. Uh, so, you know, over a longer period of time, you can actually, you know, develop more of a community of people who don't, uh, you know, take advantage of your lack of armor <laughs> or over a longer period of time, you can get better at not making those mistakes. So you don't have to self-deceive in order to feel good about yourself. Um, and the, the analogy, I, I use probably way too many analogies and metaphors in the book, That's but great. just to give you another one, the analogy that I like to, to use for this is um, it's as if you're at school and you're getting beat up by a bully or threatened by a bully who tells you, um, you, you know, hand over your lunch money or I'm going to beat you up. And so it might seem locally like 
the best choice is just handing over your lunch money because it's better better to lose a few bucks than to get you know, pulverized. Uh, and so maybe that's true locally, but if you zoom out and just think in the longer term, is this really my best choice? It's not cl- as clear that it is, you know, because you have a lot more choices in the, if you zoom out. You can, uh, you can learn to fight. You can maybe set it up so that the bully gets caught and gets sent away to military school. You could change schools or change classes. You know, you have a lot of options, um, ways to change the game board you're playing on so that you don't have to just accept the trade-off that's, that's right in front of you. And so... That's kind of what I'm arguing um, about Scout Mindset, that we feel like we face this, these, all these trade-offs where we have to hand over some of our accuracy, hand over some of our ability to see things clearly in exchange for not getting beat up, like in exchange for not suffering a blow to our self-esteem or our confidence or our motivation. And maybe that's true locally um, to some extent, but if you kind of zoom out and learn other strategies for being happy and motivated and confident that don't require self-deception, then you can escape those trade-offs. Yeah. Now, you will have some scars, but my suggestion is wear them proudly. You know, they're badges I, of I honor. I get behind that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about, I want to come back to this issue I alluded to a long time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. so it wasn't yesterday, but it wasn't back earlier in our conversation. Uh, this question of information and, and judgment and, yeah. and using it. So, my claim is that in the sort of micro level that you we're talking about right now, uh, perceiving yourself accurately, understanding your weaknesses, growing to accept them or find coping mechanisms that you talk about that are that are honest but uh, still helpful mm-hmm. and not just a source of pain and suffering. These small issues of, uh, of self-awareness, I think you're right, 100% right. On the larger issues of, of personal mm-hmm. decision-making, I think it's a lot harder case to make. So I want to give you a chance to defend it. Mm-hmm. It's not obvious what information you have to make a rational decision about, say, whether to get married, who to marry, whether to have children, whether to make a large career change, uh, Mm -hmm. what to do with your life in general. Information is kind of hard to come by, and I'm not sure we know what to do with it. So you mean... um, Well, I was trying to beat beat around the bush there a little bit. Let let me... So you and I know that, that... you and I got in a Twitter conversation about two years right. ago, maybe. I feel bad that that's been, you know, 95% of all our interaction oh, over the years is yeah. just this one issue that we've disagreed about. Yeah, that's all right. Um, it's really fantastic for me because it turns out I got a book idea out of it. Uh, so oh, my, great. My, I yeah. hope I get a credit somewhere def- in the oh, acknowledgments. Oh, you're definitely going to get a credit. So basically, that's so exciting. You made the argument that we should have a survey of people who are thinking of having children, follow them for a decade or two after they've made that decision to have children mm-hmm. and see how their happiness level is compared to those who didn't. And and when I said well, not just happiness level, oh, but other, you know, like true. do you regret it? Yeah. 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 Assess yeah. their well being in a, as full a sense as possible. And I got into a big argument, not not so much with you, but with people who piled on and as Twitter is want to have happen. Because uh-huh. they actually I actually made the claim that more information wasn't always better. Uh-huh. And they, there are a lot of people on Twitter just could not process that. You might be one of them. They just thought, well, isn't more information always better? And my response was, if it's accurate. But if you mm-hmm. can't get accurate information, it's not better at all. In fact, you've just mm-hmm. spun your wheels. So I think in most of these decisions, I don't think you have access to much information. So disagree with me. Yeah. So I, I don't think I would sign on to the claim that more information is always better. Well, Maybe in a very sort of abstract technical sense, but in practice, I think there are a lot of cases where if you expect the information to be poor, like 
poor enough quality, then you know, it's costly and, and effortful to collect a lot of information. And if it's not going to help you make a better decision anyway, then yeah, it's not really making you better off, practically speaking. So I agree with that. Uh, I think, and I also agree that in making complicated, complex life decisions where you can't, um, it, it's hard to know a lot of things in advance and, and you as a person are going to change over the years. And so there's a lot of uncertainty at that level as well. I completely agree it's hard and you can't, you can't usually be strongly confident that you've made the right choice. It's just that in spite of all those caveats, I still think that for any tough life decision, there's usually some sources of information you can find that are at least somewhat helpful. And, you know, the one that we were talking about, about whether or not to have kids, it, it does seem to me like if you could ask a bunch of parents who had kids or who didn't have kids, you know, how happy they were with their choice that that would give you some information. And the quality of that information would depend on various things. Like it would depend on uh, the sample of parents you talked to and it would depend on how you worded the questions and so on. But, but I still think that, it, you know, there are ways to do that that would be more useful than zero. <laughs> um, and that all of our other ways of making a choice about a complex life decision, like whether to have kids, are also have their own flaws. And so I guess I felt like you were you were correctly pointing out potential flaws in, in the idea of getting information from a survey, uh, but you were kind of ignoring flaws in other ways of getting information about that choice, like talking to your parents or introspecting, all of which are useful but flawed, I think, as well. And so I would just put survey methods, at least good survey methods, in this category of useful but flawed ways of getting information about your choices. Does that... Yeah. Anything in there you think is wrong? A little bit. Not not wrong, okay. but I want to react to some of it. I, although I want to okay. say first that I think uh, Emiliana Simon Thomas in that episode said that parents are happier on average. But could just be once. No, just teasing. But I, and I, I, oh, oh. <laughs> I <want to laughs> because you were objecting to her premise. Yeah, I picked on her before, and, yeah. I, and I, I felt bad doing that a few minutes later. I didn't mean to be sarcastic that what she said was obviously wrong. It was more that I <clears throat> just accepted it as a fact Right, in the right. moment when I had been so skeptical when my friend I got me, that. I okay, got that. good. But I yeah. hope she gets it if she, you know, is listening. Okay. And I'll give her a chance to respond in the comments <laughs> and elsewhere if possible. Um, but I think the point is that I think we're a little bit seduced by data. Mm-hmm. And I think the survey example excites people because it's a fact. It is a fact. X percent were happy or we had high levels of well-being right. or whatever you want. But in this particular a, survey, X correct. It's really said a, they were happier. There's yeah, a lot of caveats you have to make. Yeah, yeah. and it's really and, and I'll add for listeners, we're also in a dialogue on paragraph discussing right. this that I owe a response to. There's two up there. We'll put a link to it. People can at least read our opening statements. Uh-huh. But I, I think the I think the real danger is being over seduced by things that look like science. Mm-hmm. I would definitely talk to your parents, one's parents. I would definitely yeah. read literature. I would read poetry. I think those are powerful ways to understand what it's like to get married, to have children, to face the the ups and downs that both parenting, that both marriage and parenting bring, for example. And they're not, uh, uh, it's not a, a rose garden all the time, 24-7. Yeah. So I think there's information to be gathered. I just think we should be rich thinkers about what counts as information. I Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I'm misunderstood or like mischaracterized your view or something. Cause that's, that sounds like something I agree with. Uh, and I'm, I'm often on the side of, of cautioning people not to trust 
scientific results too blindly and recognize all of the flaws in the methodology and all of the, diff, you know, all of the ways in which a particular experiment doesn't, you can't generalize from that to other things. So I'm, I'm often making those points. Uh, I guess, you know, it, it seems like there's a, a spectrum where on, on one hand is just asking your parents, like, you know, Which how do you feel about your choice to have kids? <laughs> Were you happy? Like, what do you think I should do? Um, and then it seems like just better or, or at least as good to ask additional people. So if you, you know, also talk to friends or neighbors and then at a certain point, aren't you just doing a survey? <laughs> like that, that, sure. was, that was kind of what I was trying to say is that a survey is just, if you strip away the perhaps unwarranted prestige that surveys get, which I think you were correctly complaining about, if you strip that away, isn't a survey just, you know, you're asking a bunch of people and you already agree that asking one or two people can be useful. Um, so like what's, what, what makes it, Suddenly, at some point, as you add more and more people to the group that you're asking, at some point, it becomes a survey and and isn't is like no longer trustworthy. Is it that they're anonymous, or is it, or was your point really just about we should not pri- we shouldn't give s- surveys prestige above other sources of information gathering because they actually don't deserve it? Well, I, I first have to say that your point about isn't it just a survey is a fantastic debating point. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, I didn't mean to. I know. Yeah. No, no, I know. We're having a good conversation, but I love that. Okay. I thought that was genius. So let oh, me okay. let me try to squirm out of it. Uh, <laughs> let me try a little attempt to to put that um, integrate that with what I was claiming. I think that's right. I think there's there's a plus and a minus for a informal survey of people in your circle. One of the mm-hmm. advantages of that survey is that you know them much better. Than the strangers, mm-hmm. you have a better maybe way of processing it. They also know mm-hmm. you better, so they might actually have some insights about your susceptibility to a to a general result, or whether it won't apply yeah. to you that that you can't get from just reading a survey. And go, oh, eighty three percent of people are happy. That'll be me, maybe I hope uh-huh. almost for sure. Uh, but I think there's two other parts to it. One is, I think most people who are married or who have children struggle to articulate what that experience is like. Mm -hmm. So if you said to me, um, so when you wrote your book, you were engaged. Are you still engaged? Still, yeah. But you're not married? No. Okay, so now suppose you said to me, the cameras go off, we're not Zooming, I mean, we're not Uh recording, and you say, so really, what's it like? Am am I making a mistake? And if Uh I tried to answer that question, boy, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I could tell you how much I like marriage. I could tell you what I like about it. Mm-hmm. And it probably wouldn't be what you anticipate. So you'd learn. I think you'd learn something. Mm-hmm. It, but not every person, and I might be one of them, can really put that into words. It's very mm-hmm. subtle. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is that given that subtlety and the difficulty of articulating it, you have to put a lot of grains of salt around that sort of subjective textural summary, as just like you did around the 7 out of 1 to 10 that the person on the survey gave, they're mm-hmm. both, both of those have advantages, but they have real disadvantages. The seven's kind of silly. How are you on a scale of one to 10 with your marriage? Oh, I think I'm a seven. That's kind uh-huh. of bizarro for something as complicated and multifaceted as, and always changing as my relationship with my wife and what we create mm-hmm. together. Similarly, if you say, okay, well, flesh it out some. Well, how much time you got? 
You got <laughs> Let's spend a couple weeks together. Uh-huh. I'll really give you the flavor of it. Or better yet, come come live with us and and see what it's like day to day. That that, you know, mm-hmm. and by the way, that won't work either. Right? I guess I need a secret you need to put a secret camera in our house to see what day-to-day life, right? <laughs> We're starting to violate IRB regulations yeah. here for ethical studies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's IRB stand yeah. for? Oh, the Institutional Review Board or something? Okay. I, it, it, I was meaning to refer to the, the board that vetoes studies that professors propose because they're, you know, unethical or potentially yeah. unethical in some way. Yeah, human yeah. subjects, it's sometimes called oh, in, maybe the, that's, yeah. in the literature. But no, it could be there's an IRB. It was fun yeah. saying, I don't know. At first I thought, <laughs> oh, I should know what that is, but it's okay. It's well, right. also I might have the acronym wrong. So that, that, that's another possible explanation here. Yeah, I think that's the International Review of Books. That's not that what you thought of. <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, yeah. let's close and talk about identity a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you say something really beautiful in the last part of the book. You say um, that you should hold your identity lightly. Mm-hmm. And a part of that appeals to me deeply, but a part of it, I, re- I rebel against it. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's something for our wholeness and our sense of self to embrace it pretty fully. So tell me what, first tell us what you mean by holding it lightly and why you think it's a good thing. Right. So this is this is my variation on something that Paul Graham said. He wrote a, an essay that's pretty well known called Keep Your Identity Small. And he was talking about this well-known problem where lots of beliefs can become parts of our identity, um, most famously political beliefs or religious beliefs. uh, And they're part of our identity in the sense that, you know, we're kind of proud of those beliefs. We feel like they define us. When someone disagrees with them, we, we take that personally and we feel it's almost like someone stomping on your flag, your country's flag or something. It's a similar feeling. Um, And and, you know, it's not just politics and religion. All kinds of beliefs can become part of your identity. I lived in the Bay Area for a while, and I know that people's views on which, on the, the pros and cons of different programming languages can be, you know, very identity-relevant sure. beliefs for them. And, uh, and so Paul Graham's point was, all else equal, you should let as few things into your identity as possible. Um, so you don't feel like your views on politics or programming or whatever define you in any way. Uh, and... And I thought that was great advice, and, and I, I and a lot of people I know were influenced by that and tried to follow it. Um, my disagreement with it is is minor and is maybe less of a disagreement with what Paul Graham himself meant and more with the way many of us tried to implement it, which is just that in practice, it's really hard to not let things into your identity, just practically speaking, logistically speaking. You know, I, you know, I, as I talk about in the book, I often work with and I'm a big fan of and have a lot of agreement with the effective altruist movement. So should I say, well, no, I'm not an effective altruist because I don't want that to become part of my identity. I see the argument for that, but, uh, but practically speaking, it's like very convenient to just be able to say, yes, I'm an EA. Um, and also not just practically, it's nice to be able to lend your support to a movement by identifying with it publicly. It can help spread the ideas and the, you know, the, the cause that you care about and you think is actually good and you want it to succeed. And so there are all these ways in which it's, it's actually quite hard to not let things into your identity. Um, and so I just prefer the, the phrase, hold your identity lightly, where yes, you can define yourself as an EA or as a Democrat or a libertarian, but you just try to re- retain some detachment from that belief. Um, and that involves things like you know, always keeping it separate in your mind what I believe and what the ideology says. 
And maybe there's a lot of overlap, but there's still two distinct things. And so you, you can notice when, you know, your views diverge from the ideologies and, and always keeping in mind that your support for the movement or the ideology is contingent. It's contingent on, you know, for however long I continue to believe that this cause is doing good, I support it. But if I, if it seems to me that it's no longer doing good, then I won't support it. And just always retaining that separation in your mind that your support of these causes or ideologies is, uh, is contingent and is not just an inherent part of who you are and, and supporting that cause or that label is not the end in itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think that's a fantastic, important thing. And Paul Graham, former, not former, he's still a past Econ Talk guest, um, yeah. is such an interesting thinker. And I think there's, I, I want to add something to that, that from what we talked about before. Uh, I think it's really important to remember that other people who fly whatever flags they fly don't necessarily fly them 120%. And that keeps us from flying the flag at all sometimes because we worry, oh, they're going to think I'm one of those, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So, you know, in my case, it's, you know, I'm a religious Jew. And so people think, oh, well, then he believes. You have right. no idea what I believe. <laughs> I have no, right. and, and part of the uh, the vulnerability that we've been talking about earlier is is the acceptance that I fly that flag proudly while understanding to myself that I may I may not accept every single tenet every minute of the day, right? There are things I doubt. People go, oh, well, yeah, they're like robots. They just believe everything they're told. Are you right. kidding? <laughs> you don't know anybody then. Who's, you probably don't know enough religious Jews then. I mean, talk to one of them. We, uh-huh. we, we have doubts. We may struggle to admit them to people who are outside the, the club, right? That's mm-hmm. also part of the problem. But the idea that that we could respect our friends who identify with a certain viewpoint and understand that that does not mean they have to follow it in lockstep 100%, or maybe they do follow it, but they have doubts. Or maybe they have doubts and they're not sure you know, what the source of the they're, – they're working on whether this is something they want to, to believe in deeply and flag it. But I think it's really important to have those identities, yeah. like you say, for all kinds of reasons, not just so that we can support a cause we happen to be mostly sympathetic to, but just for our sense of self. And, and part of how we make our way through the world that allows us to be vulnerable elsewhere and in other ways. It's, it's, just, it, it's a form of armor that's, if we're lucky, isn't so off-putting to other people. Yeah, and restrictive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah the, the thing you said about um, people, people making assumptions about you based on how you identify is, I think that's really interesting and important. And there's one example that I... Uh, talk about in the book of a a rare exception on the internet uh, to the general rule that you can't talk, you can't have good productive conversations about highly identity-based things like politics or feminism in this case. So this this subreddit uh, is called FemRA Debates, and it's you know you you would assume if you hear that there's oh some subreddit that debates feminism and that's made up of feminists and MRAs, which is short for men's rights activists, um, which is a group that uh, believes men are dis- discriminated against in society and is frequently hostile to feminism. If you heard that there's a group like that um, bet- where feminists and MRAs debate feminism, you would be like, that's a dis- going to be a disaster, <laughs> which I think it usually is in such cases. But FemRA debates was kind of a shining exception to this rule. Uh, where people had really respectful and and um, civil debates and changed their minds and recognized good points that the other side made. Uh, it's fascinating. 
And where I'm going with all of this is that when I talked to a number of the members of the subreddit and asked them, you know, what do you think made you change your mind or what made you more open-minded? You started out as like a hardcore MRA and now you have a more nuanced view. Why is that? A number of them said, well, there's a rule on the subreddit. There's some rules of conduct. And one of them is that you're not allowed to make generalizations about what MRAs believe or what feminists believe. And you're not allowed to say like, well, you're a feminist. So of course, you know, you have to, you must believe that such and such. And they said that was really important because they'd come to the subreddit with just a package deal in their mind about this is what feminists believe. And then they met people who said, well, you know, I'm sympathetic to like these aspects of feminism. I disagree with these other aspects, um, but I, you know, overall on balance, I would call myself a feminist. And because people were forced to have discussions about the actual beliefs of the people they were talking to and not, you know, the the whole Caricature. ideology that they had in their head as what, what feminists believe, they were able to actually make a lot of progress. So I think that's, it's a very valuable thing when you can, when you can do what you're talking about and, uh, and try to focus just on what that person believes and not on what your assumptions are about their identity. And of course, if we're not careful in a debate, we embrace all of the caricatured traits of our identity Because we feel like we have to, because you're attacking it. And since I agree with 80% of it, I'm going to defend 100 and to the wall. And and that's Sometimes I notice myself defending things I don't even believe because someone (laughs) assumed I believed it and criticized me for it. And I I didn't even stop to ask myself, do I even believe that thing? I just reflexively tried to stand up for it. And then later was like, why am I defending this? You know? So yeah, it gives people a lot of power over you too, if you're not holding your identity lightly. Yeah, I think it's a, that's just such an incredibly important point. Um, part of it is just the role our identity plays in our in our lives. It's, in a way, so our identity, our sense of our principles, our beliefs. Yeah. It, it, it is, in many ways, our armor. It is our a way of joining the tribe of people who are like-minded and gives us a sense of belonging. So it can be mm-hmm. extremely important. And when it's threatened, we do come back often as soldiers and we forget it's not a war (laughs) you can actually be part over here and part over there and that's really i in a way that's really the lesson of your book which is uh a nice thing yeah that's a good summary said it better than i could have my guest today has been julia galef her book is the scout mindset julia thanks for being part of econ talk such a pleasure thank you so much for the stimulating conversation russ take care This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.